Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hi, hello, everybody. It's episode 212. Uh, we're recording this live on July 8th, 2021, and this is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome, joined by Mr. Blake Arnsdorf, as always. 212. Wow. It's come a long way. How are you doing today, Nick? I'm good. It's a nice palindromic quality to the episode number tonight. Um, I'm Very good. True. Hey, wh- I, I do have to talk really quickly before we get into the show proper tonight. A um, little com- uh, programming note or community update, if you will. Uh, we are going to be taking a break off for the next couple weeks. Um, Blake and I have got some stuff going on IRL. Uh, we're going to try to get as much stuff out there for you on our channels and all that stuff in the meantime, uh, but no show proper for the next couple of weeks. Um, we're still going to continue our news roundups on our blog. Uh, there'll be some content uh, coming out on our YouTube as well, um, and our patrons will continue to get their Human Factors Minute, so if you're really itching for some Human Factors content, maybe subscribe for a month, see if you like it. Uh, and uh, the main show will be back on the 29th for everyone, so wanted to get that out of the way at the top. In case you're listening, um, yeah. Anyway, uh, anything else to add to that, Blake? <laughs> no, that was a great breakdown, and I look forward to taking a little break and then coming back and getting ready right back into it. It'll be a nice little break, and when we come back, uh, my background will be a little different. So That's anyway, right. oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we're uh, we know why you're all here. You're here for Human Factors News. Yes, Human Factors News. This is a part of the show where we search all over uh, everything related to the field of human factors. Everything. Uh, I do the news stories on Tuesdays and the, the patrons choose it and it ends up being a thing from any one of the industries associated with human factors. It's all fair game as long as it relates to the field of human factors. Uh, Blake, what do we have up this week? So this week we're talking about better speed valuation for transportation planning. So transportation planning decisions, believe it or not, often involve trade-offs between travel speed and other goals. It's important to consider all the impacts when making speed-related decisions, which the Victoria Transport Policy Institute has come out with a report that examines why and how to do that. The report describes various benefits and costs of faster travel, examining how speed valuations affect planning decisions, and also how those planning decisions will ultimately affect the economy, social impacts, as well as environmental outcomes. The report also provides guidance for comprehensive evaluation of these various impacts, analysis indicating conventional planning tends to exaggerate the benefit and understate the costs of higher travel speeds. This often favors modes such as automobiles over slower, more affordable and healthy, equipable, and resource-efficient modes such as walking, bicycling to work, or public transit favoring kind of these higher roadway design speeds over these slower modes of transportation. So consumer surveys have also indicated from this institute's report that many people actually want to drive less and rely on these slower modes of transportation and live in more complex and walkable communities. Serving these demands requires much more comprehensive analysis, and we'll talk a little bit about kind of the benefits and trade-offs for this speed-related transition. So Nick, we joked a little or i joked a little but there's a good bit of seriousness in it before this that i do like to drive fast whether it's you know on a bike in a car or running but there there's something i've never really thought about when it comes to transportation or even transportation infrastructure planning and that's the impact of doing things quickly or driving fast have you really ever thought about the uh, like human factors implications of this kind of stuff for transportation no, in the pre-show, I mean, we talked a little bit about it, but I, my focus has always been, or at least my my knowledge of transportation in general has always kind of been focused on the micro changes, right? The the distance between lane markings in order to influence a driver's speed uh, and, and through perception, right? Or, or messaging on uh, road signs or anything like that, right? Um, the oncoming traffic, risk reward with, passing a car you know so that's that's the kind of experience that i have with transportation and it's never been one of those things where i've looked at it kind of this macro level so this this big meta analysis of the speed and transportation method trade-off here has been 
um, a really great article. And I mean, like, uh, I remember a couple weeks ago when I was picking this out for office hours, I looked at this and said, wow, this is a great story uh, and didn't think much of it. And then our patrons chose it. And I was like, wow, okay, yeah, now we actually have to read it and get through it. And it's uh, insanely interesting. Um, and I don't know if it's just because I have a soft spot for transportation, uh, but this this article is awesome. Um, so I want to, I think what we should start with here, Blake, um, is kind of the key findings, right? Like, let's let's just get them out of the way at the top here. Maybe I'll read one, you read one, uh, and if we have anything to say about them, we can talk about it that way. Um, sure. It, it looks like there's, uh, what, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It looks like there's ten key findings for this. So we're, we're going to go through them. Uh, so the first finding here is that transportation planning often involves trade-offs between speed and other goals. And it's important to consider all speed-related impacts in the planning process. You mentioned the impacts. Um, I don't know how much more we have to say about this. This is kind of the the whole, uh, it's like the top-level finding, right? There's Yeah, it's kind of like the thesis statement of the whole yeah. thing, really. It's like, take this stuff into account when we're doing a larger planning or macro analysis. So our second key finding here is for some trips, such as urgent errands, like we've all been on, faster travel can provide large benefits, but higher speeds are inherently costly. So faster modes require much more expensive vehicles and infrastructure, more space and energy, and impose greater health risks and environmental damages, something I don't often think about when I think about traveling quickly, and often by an order of a large magnitude. So all of these things kind of compound together. Uh, but because higher speed travel tends to increase with wealth, speed prioritization planning tends to be inequitable. Uh, it increases costs that affluent travelers impose on disadvantaged groups. Now, talk about a very meta impact that is not, I don't think, in the zeitgeist self-evident. That's that's definitely something that's never even crossed my mind, is that with more wealth, you tend to acquire like on a in correlation correlation wise faster vehicles and so ultimately that ends up impacting disadvantaged groups or people that don't have cars that's that's incredible really dude private jets that didn't occur to you <laughs> yeah so i guess i'm thinking about like just cars and thinking how slow my car drives um and then i don't i don't really know it's interesting i didn't even think of jets like yeah so a learjet that would have a lot of impact yeah um and huh. this is this is an interesting point for a lot of uh, reasons, right? And I, I think it it talks about a lot of different um, sort of costs here, uh, the the space and energy required uh, to run these things, right? And and this is something I think we talked about briefly be before the show, but I didn't actually consider the the space of infrastructure required for faster vehicles, and it might seem. Uh, obvious to some, but right, like big parking lots is a thing that you need to store all these vehicles. Or that's kind of the obvious one. The less obvious one, at least to me, was that there are certain requirements for distances between vehicles on like a freeway. And so the faster the speed limit, the more distance between cars you need to have. And so the more lanes you need to have to accommodate that type of um, that type of road, right? Which is why there are speed limits on, on the roads. That's to get at how much space uh, for the flow of traffic that there there needs to be between you and the car ahead of you. It's it's kind of insane. I didn't think about that. Um, there's uh you know like the just in terms of the the distribution of wealth, right? I mean, it's a lot cheaper to take a bus or to walk than it is to own a vehicle, own the insurance for that vehicle, pay for gas for that vehicle, um, and so yeah, it does incur all these additional. Um, sort of uh that's what i'm looking for it's inequitable right you have uh those with more money are able to afford those things where those with less are unable to afford those and are are almost forced to take some sort of the public transportation i want uh any other closing thoughts on point two i want to get into point three here oh head on into point three so uh, point three here planners often assume that faster travel provides time savings but people tend to maintain fixed travel time budgets. They devote about the same number of daily minutes to personal travel, regardless of speed. So as a result, faster travel increases travel distances rather than saving time. 
This causes mobility inflation. It ratchets up the it ratchets up the amount of travel people require uh, to meet their needs, which is costly to communities and unfair to people with limited mobility. So, I want to break this point down because that's a lot of words. And basically, what it's saying is that um, as more and more people get access to these faster vehicles, we own a car. And so it's not inconvenient for us to drive 15 miles down the way to go to the grocery store. Uh, That is hugely inconvenient for people that rely on walking or uh, public transportation because then they have to figure out what the schedule is. They're on that schedule and uh, it's quite a distance. And so when you're thinking about time budgets for travel... Right, it may take you five minutes to drive that fifteen miles because you just hop in your car, go down the freeway, and you're there door to door five minutes. Where somebody else might it might take them an hour to get there because they're dependent on public transportation. And so we're talking about these time travel time budgets for people, and we think about what what this is point here is saying is that we think about things in terms of travel time budgets and not necessarily distance or time it takes to get something. This is the daily minutes of personal travel, um, and that's regardless of speed, right? So here in California, a great example, when you say, how far is something away, we often reply with, it depends on the time of day because of traffic. And that builds into our estimation of how long it's going to take us to get to somewhere, right? Five miles could take five minutes or it could take an hour depending on which street you're on here in Southern California. So so we we tend to, uh, the whole point here is that we look at those travel time budgets rather than distance or speed. We're looking at the destination. We're looking at um, those types of things and budget according to that, not necessarily the mode of travel. Um, any, Any points on that, Blake? That is... Very interesting to me because I feel like one thing I've really started taking advantage of is walking to places that I can just because of where I live. Um, and But it's it's not really something that I think about as my personal travel time. Like I, I know it only probably takes 10 minutes to walk to the grocery store and then, you know, 10 minutes back. Uh, but it's not something that I, I guess I budget for all the time. And it's it's it'd be interesting, like, because at some point I'm going to have to move or change apartments if we want to buy a house or whatever and so that that change in my personal anchored time cost is going to be much different now that i can't like walk to the grocery store and i'll have to drive uh, so it's cool to think about it this in a much more scientific way is the best way i can think to put it than like normally i'm thinking about time or distance savings yeah, it's it is interesting, right? And and I think that's a great point that they make in this article about the time budget rather than the um, the speed budget. So uh, why don't we get into point four here? All right. So contrary to common assumptions, higher speeds do not necessarily support economic development. See, this is another connection that I find fascinating. So faster travel can increase productivity if it increases overall accessibility. But those benefits are generally offset by the additional costs of increased vehicle travel and sprawl. So, again, like another connection that I would not necessarily draw because I, I think for me, I do associate, you know, living closer to work and being able to drive there and get there quickly as a, a productivity or efficiency cre- increaser. However, I guess like overall, maybe that's not actually the case, and it could even have economic impacts depending on how it impacts other people if they're able to live close enough to work, if they're able to take transportation that's their own versus walking or or taking public transport. Um, So the impact here is kind of of intense because, it's again, it's not something I think about in terms of the macro level or the overall impact of, you know, taking the highway to work. Yeah, I mean, coming from my experience, like I used to drive uh, upwards of like four hours a day uh, to and from, uh, you know, to get there and back uh, for work. And, um, you know, it's kind of interesting that this was done during the pandemic. Like how how are things going to change now that like people are working from home more and not commuting? And is that going to impact our travel budgets? Right. Like for me. I was very drained after a two-hour drive uh, home, right? And so 
when you know it was asking me to do anything after work it was like no thank you i'm good i'm just gonna stay home my budget is expended but now i'm at home all the time working here and uh it's like yeah i want to get out and i want to do things and i have all that time in my budget that i didn't have before for travel um and is there any way i can take public transportation i don't know i see it as (laughs) it's it's one of those things where like yeah there's a lot of costs but i'm a parent and i can't it's like taking a toddler on public transportation is a huge thing. And like, maybe if we lived in a community where that's possible, like we do walk to, you know, some of the businesses close by, um, when we can, we take the stroller, but it's like to do that. Um, the, the further you get, the harder it becomes, right. The more moving pieces you have. Um, yeah. Interesting point. Uh, I think we skip one. I'm going to go back here. So, Current planning practices tend to exaggerate. So I guess this is technically point four. Blake read point five, but we'll just call this point five. Uh, current pl- <laughs> current planning practices tend to exaggerate the benefits, underestimate the costs, and ignore inequities of faster travel. Current planning generally recognizes trade-offs between speed and safety, but overlooks the other impacts such as reduced affordability, public health, and mobility for non-drivers. This results in uh, an overinvest in faster modes and higher uh, roadway design speeds, which over the long run increases total vehicle travel and sprawl. So what we're talking about here is because of this um, misunderstanding in planning activities, they are not taking uh, into consideration some of the things they should be in terms of smart design of a, a, a like community layout, right? You you work right next to where you reside and there's also a grocery store there and everything you need. And so you don't really need to travel that far, right? This is kind of that smart city approach where everything's kind of close by and you don't really need to take transit. Um, But that gets, uh, it gets harder the further away from the city you are, right? The, The further away you are from these highly dense population areas. But what we're talking about here is um, this this misunderstanding in focus during these planning activities. It basically um, it means that they're going to make design the roadways to be higher speeds, which means you get to uh, someplace further away faster. But that increases sprawl, which makes it less likely for somebody to be able to use those public transportation pieces to get somewhere or to walk right um so that's kind of the point Uh, any anything to follow up with that one that one's really tough to think about because you have to then almost make a a pretty big trade-off in terms of where you decide to live like do you live close to where your job is or do you like live in a community that makes you you know able to walk to places or kind of have you know public transit a little bit more accessible for things you want to do with your family or your partner or whatever it may be. And it's, it's interesting that it's the world's, or at least here in California, I mean, I don't know what it's like everywhere. It doesn't feel like it's really set up to, unless you're working like downtown and living downtown, you're really not able to kind of have all of that stuff easily accessible without having a car or without having a mode of transportation that is beyond, you know, walking or biking. So it's a, it would be cool if like more and more, I I don't know if more and more cities is the answer, but more and more communities being designed to support like life and work um, in some way, which is in a lot of ways, it's, it's interesting because this does play into, you know, the impact of the pandemic and more people working remotely. And it may, from my perspective, it's definitely given me the capability to, you know, live, be more absorbed in the community that I live in and not being, you know, traveling as much to go back and forth to and from work, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I I think that's a great point too. It's like when you, when you have these, I think there's going to be a massive shift, right? When you have these people able to work from home, uh, you are eliminating that commute, that sprawl to get to work. And so I think that, is helpful in a lot of situations. There's still the inequities that come with being able to afford a computer, being able to afford the space to be able to work at home. Um, but I think we're going to see a lot more of like a com- compacting uh, uh, of the 
sort of <laughs> of spaces, right? Because this takes care of one of those branches. Now, all that's left is to uh, design a community where you have people living. And this could be a suburb where you have people living and then you have a grocery store right next to it and kind of the basic needs. And then maybe you drive further for you know, one-off things, maybe like hardware stores down the line. Uh, you don't need one of those in every community, but a grocery store is something that people go to frequently or like a clothing store or something like that, you know? So designing with those in mind to where you could walk to those depending on um, where you live and it could be central to a suburb. So that way everybody can get to it equidistant. And then there's this whole, um, you know, like planning piece of, uh, of infrastructure and where people live and how all things kind of, you know, the smart design of how things are laid out. It's really interesting. And I feel um, like the impact of, because I think an unintended impact here may be that you have people that are also kind of, they're living, because there used to be like, you know, transportation from a manufacturing perspective was different 10 years ago than it is now. Now we have, you know, much more Amazon kind of various vehicles out in the world potentially impacting a bunch of different uh, or potentially impacting how the infrastructure in various places was originally designed. And then we've also, you know, got like the advent of more vehicles and more travel as well as people that do things like Lyft or Uber. So now we have more people depending on transportation means of various types and being on the road at more times that could, you know, in a way impact whatever model was actually put forth and the macro design that originally came up in these different cities. And I right. wonder how much of, if any, a lot of that is kind of considered here is when you have emergent businesses that have these unintended consequences um, come into play. Yeah, good point. You want to get into this next point here, point six? I, I shrunk it, so you're going to see this at the top one. Nice. Thank you so much. All right, so the inefficiency and inequity of speed prior prioritizing planning are evident if transport performance is evaluated using effective speed, defined as the travel distance divided by the time spent traveling and earning money to pay for travel expenses. Measured this way, automobile travels often slower than bicycling or public transport and is regressive because it benefits affluent motorists who have more time who value time more than money, but it hurts lower income people who prefer lower cost uh, modes. That totally makes sense because it's uh, it's even like a, the f one, this is not the best example for the, the lower cost problem, but think about working in Silicon Valley. It's very expensive to live there. Um, but there's a lot of job opportunities, especially for people in human factors or UX that are interested in various types of tech. Like it's a giant center for that. But there's like the giant cost of having to drive or take transportation to work for a lot of these companies. And you end up doing that like two and a half hour back and forth if you want to live in a you know more affordable housing or anything like yeah. that. And so there is this this kind of really big issue, I think, of you have this access to a lot of great work and opportunity, but it comes at a severe cost from a kind of like transportation perspective. And I think things like having more public transit, which to San Francisco's, San Francisco's benefit, it has more access from my perspective. Um, but having more modes of that kind of stuff with more affordable kind of you know, options around the board. I mean, I don't even know how to tackle that issue. Yeah, it's insane because like a lot of the cities built right now are not equipped for large structural changes in infrastructure. Um, no. So the best they can do is like throw an extra bus route in there maybe or, um, you know, that's I, and I don't like yanking the chain too much here. But like this is why novel ideas like the... Um, like the Hyperloop or uh, even these underground tunnels that Elon Musk is talking about. That's why those are so um, sort of interesting is because they're sort of these solutions that could benefit these cities that are already out there, right? You think about a big city like Los Angeles, you put tunnels underneath and now you've opened it up to a whole different dimension. You are literally going uh, not just X, Y, but now you're going Z down below to um, get from point A to point B, at least for longer distances, and that might help, um, and you can keep digging down as far as you'd like. 
So, uh, you know, things like that are interesting when you think about patching some of these issues, um, especially with these cities that are not built for this infrastructure already. I'm not saying it's a good idea to put tunnels down below, but, you know, thinking of these out of the box ideas, can you have like um, Uber drones that also take advantage of the Z plane, but now they're above, you know, navigating through the city and get you to a certain landing spot, a little closer to where you're going. And how do you make that affordable? Right. I think tunnels are probably a little bit more affordable than a drone flying across the city. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, I think over time, maybe that then makes the other things a little bit more accessible. If if, you know, upper middle class can afford the Uber drone, then does that then open up um, better infrastructure to or to utilize the infrastructure that is already built for others? Um I don't know, and and it'll be interesting yeah. to see. I mean, the tunnel thing is interesting, right? Because if if like maybe that's a way to it's the, the wrong turn of phrase, but the only way I can think of like clean up the streets themselves. So making it so basically, if you own your own vehicle, like great, use the tunnel system and free up more space for public transport, so we could add you know more bus routes or more options in that realm, or more kind of of that like free of that ride sharing concept uh, that can take advantage of the inf- infrastructure that exists, but also providing benefit to various types of different income situations, but then still allowing anybody who owns a vehicle and all that kind of stuff to still take advantage of the tunnel system. Um, yeah. There's a lot to figure out there, but I think you're right. Thinking outside of the box and trying to take different solutions in is ultimately really what's going to allow for a restructuring of any kind of planned infrastructure for transportation. It's not like we can just, you know, halt everything in a city for a couple of years and we'll, we'll reconfigure it and then everybody will be fine. Oh Uh, yeah. I mean, or do you like, as buildings become available um, or are constructed, do you start making them to where you have a grocery store on the bottom floor? Um, and, you know, apartment buildings above that. And so, like, that then becomes a grocery store for the entire apartment building. That could be something that helps, right? And I know that's in some places, but not everywhere. And if you start thinking about things that way, providing the basic needs to everybody to where they just take an elevator down and boom, they're there. I don't know. I, maybe Lots I'm, of value. Yeah. Um, all right. I'm going to get into point seven here. So this is uh, faster travel is not bad, but it is costly. For uh, efficiency and equity's sake, planning should favor slower, affordable, and resource-efficient modes over faster, costly modes, and traffic speeds should be set to optimize community livability. So this is kind of combining a couple of the points that we've already talked about. You know, it's um, sort of the cost associated with these faster speeds, um, the in- inequity that's associated also with these faster seeds. So um, making sure that these speed limits make sure that, you know, uh, we're taking advantage of not encouraging sprawl, but rather, you know, sort of compacting the community and making it a little bit more um, walkable, a little bit more bikeable, um, able to get to point A to point B with some of this uh, transportation. That's a pretty a uh, simple point. I don't know how much more we can elaborate on that. So I'm going to pass it back over to you, Blake. One point bit eight. about that that yeah. I do want to say is that it's it definitely makes me appreciate and look at speed limit signs and traffic limit signs differently. Because yeah. usually it's just like, okay, that's a number. But there is some way that it's put together that, that supposedly should optimize how you're able to get from point A to point B, but also change how a community is structured. All right. Really but, quick here, right. I'm going to jump yeah. in with a comment from Kristen um, with the tunnel comment, uh, you know, using tunnels for non-automated vehicles and freeing up the freeways for fully automated vehicles. That could be one solution. Um, Amen. I, I would think it's it's the opposite, right? You build the tunnels for fully automated vehicles because uh, then they can all be set for a certain parameter. You can make them turn them into their own uh, vehicles that optimize the space within the tunnels. Um and you don't have to worry about, well, what happens if a tunnel gets congested below? You know, you still leave that infrastructure up above because you have all that access, but the tunnels might be, um, you know, uh, for longer distances or something like that. I don't know. I don't have the answers. That's just my thought. But it's interesting to think about how do we optimize the spaces, right? 
we can't use the Z space above us for, you know, non-automated vehicles right now because cars don't fly. Uh, although there is a news story this week that was very cool. You should go check that out. Um, but the, uh, you know, where do you put things? And do you put buses below in the tunnels um, to help them get from point A to point B better and make public transportation more reliable? It's a question. Um, so I don't know. Uh, why don't we get into this next point here? Point, I guess, what, eight, nine, eight? Eight. 8.5. All right. So to their credit, many policymakers and planning practitioners support slower modes and traffic speed reductions more than their economic models justify. They realize intuitively that slower modes play important roles in an efficient and equitable transportation system and so does and so deserve public support. However, this occurs despite rather than supported by standard analysis practices. Reforming these practices can justify more support for slower modes of transportation. Interesting. So it's it sounds like that there needs to be a, a change or a reconfiguration of what's going on from the analysis perspective to make it probably more clear and more self-evident that there is like a, a, a trade-off we're making by allowing faster speeds, um, not just for a, like travel time and sprawl, but you know, there's economic impacts. And so although people realize this from the policy perspective, because it's not, you know, I, I would assume in the zeitgeist or is popular of a known topic um, that without kind of better analysis or better meta-analyses like this paper or this kind of like large report, it's kind of hard to make that case um, as evident to, you know, all of the policymakers. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because we need to shift the paradigm to rather becoming a um, a, a, a preferred thing because it's saying it's just it's this occurs despite rather than supported by. Right. So I think it needs to become the standard uh, to favor these things and, and to reef format the process right and that's that's what they're saying here with this point um, and i'm wondering if like your point earlier about that it's it's not straightforward to make these restructures or to make a lot of these changes wholesale to create communities yeah. that support this stuff so that that could be why although we understand that there's issues it's not like generally supported um, yeah. just a lot of cost so my call well, to action for this episode is if you're listening to this and want to get involved in your local government um, you can bring them this article and get involved with the transportation, you know, division of your local department and set speed limits for places and be like, look, we need lower speed limits for this reason. Um, all right. I'll get into point nine here. So this is a uh, more comprehensive speed analysis is likely to result in less investment in urban highways, more investments into active and public transport modes lower roadway design speeds, more planning to improve travel comfort and convenience rather than speed. So that's good. I like that, right? If they're basically spending, if you spend more time on this analysis, um, your basically investment shifts from um, making things more efficient to more comfortable and convenient for the end user, which in this case is people traveling from point A to point B. Um, at least in public transportation, right? So, and and that even goes for walking too. If you plan a city from the top down and look at, you know, say, oh, somebody can walk from this place to this place, and that's great. Um, then it will have a lasting impact as well. Um, any other follow-ups to this one? There's one more point I'd, left. I really like the point about improving the travel comfort of the existing, you know transportation options because imagine if you did have a farther commute but you had a slower option that allowed you to maybe you know do something outside of just drive the car or like sit in a in an uber or whatever it is like if you were able to get some work done or you know do something that's like a hobby or that you're that you're interested in like reading or whatever it could really i don't know change how people kind of perceive these different modes of travel and it could change how employers see the different modes of travel in terms of you can still be efficient by and get your work done by taking you know a train to work um, but anyway all right last point up so of course every traveler has unique needs and preferences and many choose faster modes such as automobiles despite their higher costs for the sake of convenience or status 
However, current demographic and economic trends, such as aging population, increasing urbanization, plus growing affordability, uh, health and environmental concerns, are increasing demand for slower modes in livable neighborhoods. Given better options, many people would choose slower travel modes and homes, more compact multimodal neighborhoods uh, that provide more accessibility with less mobility. Everybody benefits if our planning practices respond to the, these demands. And this is really like, I, I honestly, we said that first bullet was the thesis of the article, but I really feel like this kind of drives everything we've talked about home. There's a lot of different kind of multivariate factors going on here that are impacting it for the sake of transportation. That's really the, the main thing that's focused on here, but the potential benefits of changing basically the existing infrastructure and thinking about this in a macro way could have, you know, potential benefits to not just, you know, how long you're spending in a car or how much it's costing, but just larger implications like environmental concerns or just making your life a little bit more enjoyable because you have a much tighter knit community. Yeah, I agree. I think this is a great end cap point for this entire article. And I think we did a good job of covering a lot of the concepts. I don't know if we need to go through those. Um, you know, I think uh, I, I, one interesting point that I do want to bring up here is like, you know, people might say in surveys that they would prefer slower travel. Um, but like, at least here in California, speeding is the norm, right? We get frustrated at cars going below the speed limit or going faster than the flow of traffic. Um, and so like, how can we, what can we do to sort of make this slower transport like bicycles or public transportation walking, uh, more attractive to people. Right. And that's another sort of interesting point that, um, I don't know if this article necessarily touched on so much. It kind of, kind of highlighted the differences between the modes, but, um, how do we sort of, uh, push a message to encourage people pro-social messages to encourage people to utilize those other ways of transportation right like for me public transit isn't even in the equation like i don't even think about a bus when i think about going to somewhere i i might think about it if i'm on travel in a new place i might think about it if i am going a long distance like maybe um you know uh to a different state or something or uh, take a Greyhound or take a train or something like that. But I don't think about it locally. And so how do we, you know, what's, what can we do locally? I think is a, is a bigger question. Yeah. And I think that going back to almost taking some of the planning aspects or funding and putting it more back into the community for public transit may help because making things more comfortable and more attractive, um, and have more utility for local folks could have a lot of impact. But I don't know. It just it really depends because I think a lot of the stuff that's being mentioned in this article is not just that people like to drive faster, but there's also some kind of like status marker that's coming with owning a vehicle, owning a fast vehicle um, that has like it. It, it's afforded to people who have a certain lifestyle, uh, but it does trickle down and have impacts on potentially everybody else. The one thing that is just jumping out at me is I wonder if like if these meta analyses get more and more public and people really really do from a policymaker standpoint try to see the benefits of slower means of transportation or slower modes that if we start seeing newer um like newer communities that are developed start to develop in a way where it's got a lot more things locally um, accessible to them or if as we're seeing like the tech boom expand outside of Silicon Valley, if places like Colorado or Texas kind of start forming their communities around some of these um, larger uh, corporations, if we, if like that can be a push to start making communities a little bit more accessible in terms of modes of transportation or any of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Great points. And um I, I don't really have much else on this article. I will say, Blake, that I was a little worried that we were going to be. Um, I, I was going to worry. I was worried that we weren't going to have enough to talk about. But we're like forty minutes into this podcast. <laughs> there we go, and the magic happens. <laughs> do you uh, do you have any other closing thoughts on this amazing article? Just thanks to the Patreons for picking it. This is something I think we don't touch on enough, and it is like a very seminal human factors uh, topic or industry when we think about it, transportation. And like Nick said, uh, thinking about this in the macro level is fun because it's it's really kind of 
stretching my mind to really think more systems of system style than like yeah. the 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 micro behavior stuff that I'm used to. Yeah, I agree. So thank you to our patrons this week for selecting our topic, and thank you to our friends over at Victoria Transport policy institute for our news story this week if you want to follow along join me for office hours on tuesdays where i find these news stories and we do post the links to the original articles on our weekly roundups and our blog you can also join us on our slack or discord for more discussion on these stories we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to see what's going on in the human factors community right after this human factors cast brings you the best in human factors news interviews conference coverage and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce but we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, like I said, huge thank you, as always, to our patrons, and especially our honorary Human Factors cast staff patron, uh, Michelle Tripp. Uh, patrons like you keep the show running, literally keep our lights on over here. Uh, you know, this is what Patreon looks like without you. So I'm just, uh, <laughs> for, the, for those on video, so I might go off. <laughs> Thank you so much for your continued support. And if you want to become a patron, uh, we are always updating our rewards over there. Always putting out fun things for our patrons. Want to make sure that you are taken care of. Uh, Patreon is our priority. Want to make sure that the people who support the show financially are getting their money's worth. Um, and so at the very least, go check it out. See if it's right for you. If not, um, you know, you can help support the show in other ways. And we'll get to those at the end of the show. But uh, here's a little fun fact for you. If we have two more patrons at the HFE level, Human Factors Engineer level, uh, that would allow us to upgrade to get some artificial intelligence going on with some of our transcripts and make our shows a little bit more accessible to those who are hearing impaired. So if you are considering supporting us, uh, that is a um, one reason that you might want to do that, it, to help our transcripts help those who are hearing impaired. Uh, all right, let's go ahead and get into this next part of the gear show. We're going to switch gears. It came from. It came from. Yes, it came from. This is the part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics that you, the community, the human factors community, the user experience community, the design community, the psychology community, any community, as long as it's human factors tangential, is talking about. Um, so we got two tonight. Uh, I think we're going to go ahead and get into this first one. I really like this question. This one is thoughts on working at a design or human factors agency versus a product-based or in-house company. Um, and this is from Gupta98 on the user experience subreddit. They go on to write, uh, would you rather work for companies like IDEO, which are mainly agencies for, com or, or sorry, which are mainly agencies, or Companies like Netflix, Apple, or Spotify, can you please list some pros and cons of each? Or are you, um, or if you are working at any, how do you like it? Uh, Blake, have you worked for an agency? Have you worked for a, a tech company like this? Um, and what's kind of the difference? Yeah, so I haven't worked specifically for one of these kind of like fang companies or anything like that, but I have had the experience of working in an agency-style model and being focused on a singular product like something like Netflix or Apple. Uh, I th honestly, this is this might not be everybody's favorite answer, uh, but I love both. I think both have massive benefits and can teach you a lot regardless of what you're doing. So from the focal product aspect, you get immensely familiar with your user base, the product itself, and you can really optimize something through human factors work or user experience research and design work. So you have a lot of opportunity to have a high impact on like a singular product that you're focused on. I think from the agency perspective, it's nice to get a lot of variety and get a giant set of touch points. So for agency work, you could be doing anything from responsive web design to like 
application design to even working on physical products. So, and I think that has massive benefit, especially early in your career. Um, if you haven't had a lot of experience with a diverse set of products and it can really tell you like, do I want to go spend most of my career life in digital products or do I really like to do physical product design? Um, so I think both are provide very different experiences that allow you to kind of hone skills. But I think it's, if you can try both of them so that you can really get a gamut of what it's like to work in both settings. But Nick, have you had experience in both these realms? Damn it, Blake. Would you say it depends? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I need the it depends button. I promise one of these days I'm going to get a Staples yeah. button. And uh, it, I've worked for both. And I think uh, I'm going to agree with you, Blake. I think it does depend. I didn't know how I was going to answer this question until I was faced with it just now. I Each of them have their uh, pros and cons. And I think we can go over those pros and cons. So I think let's start with just a... Um, an in-house or product-based company like your Netflix, like your Spotify. Uh, I think in this example, you are heavily invested in one specific product and you are making adjustments at the micro level. Like we talked about these macro and micro adjustments in our news story tonight. And I think that was a great (laughs) kind of primer for this because I think of this as uh, a way to improve... um, marginally upon a product but have a large impact so what i'm talking about here is uh there's always going to be ways to improve a product and it's kind of like um i don't know if you've ever seen that graphic of like what education is like where you have kind of the uh the expanding circle where you have like hey here's your general education here's your specialty and then here's your phd and it looks like a little bump off to the side and that bump keeps um, extending as you learn more in your domain. And that's kind of what I'm thinking of when it comes to this. Like there's so much blanket user experience, blanket human factors principles that you can apply towards a product. But once you get to that point, uh, there's going to be room for improvements, but they're marginal, but you dig deeper into that one product to make it better over time. That's why some of these products that have these in-house teams feel so polished is because they've been working on it for a long time. They've tested different things with just this one product. Um, Now, take the other approach where you're at an agency. You are usually on contract for something, and so you don't have the history with the product um, that you might have for an in-house agency, or sorry, an in-house company. Um, If you are with one of these design agencies or design company, human factors company, Uh, You're going to be doing, like Blake said, a variety of different work. And that can also benefit you, um, you know, when it comes to working and problem solving on some of these solutions, right? You might encounter a problem on one project that has a solution from another project. And having those connections of neurons in your brain that go, oh, this is a great solution from this other thing that we can apply to this is really useful. But I also feel like that's a trap in a lot of ways because then uh, you are so not necessarily pressed for time, but the solutions that you uh, make towards the, sol- uh, towards the solution on one thing might not necessarily benefit when you're just taking a plug-and-play thing from another project. I think it, it does largely depend, and you do get the breadth with a design or human factors agency, but you get the depth with a um, with a product or an in-house company. So... If you're very passionate about a specific product, I think that could be right for you. If you are still experimenting and figuring out what is right for you, I think the design agency or human factors company is probably the right way to go. Um, or if you just enjoy a variety of different things and don't really want to settle, I know that's you know an attractive quality for some people. And so that uh, might be a better fit for a human factors company. That's kind of where I'm at. Anything else to add to that one, Blake? No, that was perfect, man. Really brought it home and kind of made some specific points there. Thanks, man. I try. Um, All right. So this next one here, uh, this is what do you do when you're stuck on a problem? This is by Caters on the human or sorry, the user experience subreddit. They go on to write currently stuck on a problem that I can't solve properly. I'm curious to hear what's your approach when you find yourself in those situations. Do you reframe the problem in a different way? Do you have a specific set of questions that you always ask yourself or any other systems that you follow? Really curious to know about this. Thanks. 
Blake, what do you do when you're stuck on a problem? So I'm, I've learned the hard way <laughs> the, the, to do this, and I think it, it sounds obvious, but sometimes it is not the most straightforward thing to do. At, go ask for help, because you can ruminate on a problem, apply your specific framework or systems thinking to it, and you still may not be coming at it the correct way, and expertise or just sometimes bouncing ideas off of somebody else within your team or like within the company you work for who has a diverse set of experience outside of your own um, current experience could really change how you're looking at a problem to help you figure out if you do need to reframe it. Do you need to take a step back and do more research before you actually define what the problem is? But there's, there's a reason that like uh, even, even when I did contracting on my own, like as a freelancer, I was this is where the podcast studio was at one point, and it was a, a startup incubator. I would go to the developer that worked outside my office and ask him questions about something I was tackling. And him not even, you know, being a part of, you know, my little contracting thing that I was doing, it still was helpful to like talk through ideas and get concepts down. So in my case, when I get stuck on a problem, I've gotten to the point where I make myself ask for help, either with somebody I'm super comfortable with, like a mentor, or one of my teammates that I'm currently working with. That's some great advice, Blake. I actually, uh, it might even sound simpler than that, but what I do, the very first thing, when I encounter a brick wall, um, the first thing I do is I step away, uh, and I don't work. And I typically find that when I come back to a problem with fresh eyes, it's um, a little bit better. I think asking for help is a great, great solution. Um, you know, there are benefits. Like, here's here's another ties into our last question. Design agency, human factors company. You're working with a bunch of people who have a variety of experiences with human factors. And so they can come back to you and say, hey, here's X, Y, Z. Um, you know, different solutions that you could employ for that product. Uh, but I think when you're stuck on a problem, the best thing for me to do is I step back. And I say, okay, I let my team know, hey, I am stepping back for a couple hours. I'm, I've hit a wall, um, and here's my problem. I let them know, and I'm, I'm just stepping back. If you need me, I'm here, but I'm stepping back. And I will. I'll step back, and I'll think about it for a couple hours. I'll go do something else. I'll switch modes, um, which is often helpful. Um, and what I often find myself doing is when I try to switch modes is I fixate on the thing. And... Uh, I don't know if that's helpful, but sometimes fixating on the problem while you're doing something else like playing a game or watching TV or something, and it just drives into your brain. And it's like, oh, there it is. That's at least my next steps. I try to not necessarily solve the problem, but identify what the next steps are. Do I ask for help? Do I do a competitive analysis with other things that are trying to do the same thing? Do I... Um, research X, Y, and Z to try to solve the problem? Uh, do I need to talk to a user about the thing that I'm trying to solve? Like, so I, I think about the next steps necessarily and not necessarily the solution. And I find that when I come back to work, when I sit down, I go, okay, I at least know what I need to do next. And then I do it. Um, so that's kind of what I do on a, when I'm stuck on a problem. I know it's not, it's easier to say step away. Um, not everybody can, especially if you work in an office with other people that depend on your schedule. Um, make yourself available. And I know it's not necessarily always easy to step away in an office environment where you're expected to work. But if you are working from home and have that flexibility, that helps. Um, so anyway, well, why don't we, uh, anything else to add to that one, Blake? I do have one more tidbit for it. Cause yeah. you, you did drive a good, a good thing home and like a strategy that I use probably once a week. Cause I get hung up on development issues is if I just really hit a wall I can't do anything else because of the benefits of working from home. I will step away and do as hard of a workout as I can and sleep on the problem. And one example of that is it happened to me this week yet. It happened to me basically yesterday did the workout went to sleep. I woke up about like five 45 this morning and had a random idea that just came to me. So it was one of those things that, like you said, stepping away from the problem and letting it ruminate in the back of your mind, because I go to bed thinking about problems that I've had during the day and trying to solve them, and probably I'm still doing so subconsciously while asleep. <laughs> um, but sometimes it just provides you a different perspective when you wake up the next day and you can try something new. Um, so that's another strategy you can try and take. 
All right. Well, why don't we get into uh, one more thing? This needs no introduction. This is Blake and I's banter. Uh, Blake, what do you have up for your one more thing this week? Up this week, one thing that I've really been enjoying, Nick, is, and you may have seen this in the Discord if anybody's been, you know, <laughs> hanging out in the tool section of our Discord. I've been throwing a bunch of Python resources in there because that came up actually in the lab meeting um, for one of the weeks for the Human Factors Cast Digital Media Lab. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, that's uh, it. And it's been fun. Like, Python is so... It's interesting because it's, it's different from JavaScript for me. Uh, one thing that has come up for me is that finally now, after all these kind of years of playing in web development, I feel much more confident in JavaScript than I ever have. So I can pick up other languages a little bit easier, and it's not as daunting to tackle. And one thing that I really enjoy about Python is it's meant for data analysis. So it's letting me dive into machine learning concepts a little bit deeper than I would have before. And it's a great companion for some of these Google courses I'm taking on machine learning. Um, so I don't know. It's just been fun. If you, if anybody's interested in Python, we do have a couple resources from free code camp in our tool section of our discord. Um, but yeah, that's kind of it. Blake, you let me know when we can uh, use machine learning to produce these episodes when we're gone. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. For the articles. So we just set up automation. Patrons choose it. It uh, uses deep fakes to, m you know, mask our voices and, and our faces. And it uses machine learning based on the article that we talk about on the week. You feed that in as the input. And then the output is us talking about. Let me know. Um, it's coming okay. soon. Uh, my one more thing this week is uh, moving sucks and moving sucks really bad um, and moving sucks especially bad when you have a small human that you must take care of at the same time um, oh because there are certain rooms that are off limits at certain times of the day. Uh, so nap time, you know, the, the room is off limits. Uh, sleep time, the room is off limits. And so um, trying to figure out how to optimize you know, packing everything that you own into these boxes and uh, putting them in places where the small human can't get to or open up or take things out of is a real challenge. And um, it really sucks. And I want to do it again. And so, <laughs> oh man, at least like the move is coming soon. It's coming. Yeah. I mean, like we're, we're pretty close, which is why summer hiatus everyone, but like, it it sucks really bad, and I don't want to do it anyway. Um, that's that. I I just it sucks, and I feel for anyone who's got to move. Um, and all the logistics behind everything, finding hotels, rooms at the appropriate distances along the way, uh, getting to from point A to point B, uh, worrying about all the you know movers and U-Haul and movers and <sighs> so check much. out and check in and all, anyway all that uh well you know what everybody that's gonna be it for today everyone let us know what you guys think of the news story this week if you want you can hang out with us on our slack or discord or get to us on any of our social channels uh you can visit our official website sign up for our newsletter stay up to date with all the latest in human factors news if you like what you hear you want to support the show there's a couple ways you can do that one uh you can leave us a five-star review on wherever you're at right now there's likely a little button that says review this show do that uh, tell your friends about us. That's the second way you can do it. The best way we can grow is if you tell your colleagues about us, especially if you're at a human factors firm. Check that out. Uh, and three, consider supporting us on Patreon. Like I said, if you're able to, go check us out. Uh, and, and we're going to be off for two weeks here. If you want to fill that void, we have, uh, I think, something like 70-something human factors minutes up there. Anyway, go check that out uh, if you if you can. Um, and, uh, you know, as always, links to all of our socials and our website is going to be in the description of this episode. Mr. Blake Garnsdorf, where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about infrastructure and transportation? Absolutely. Y'all come and find me in the Discord. You can just at Blake me in there at any time. But across social media, you can also find me at Don't Panic UX. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me streaming on Twitch Tuesdays at 1 Pacific for office hours and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it, it depends. depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. 
humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.